Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusuf. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. My name is Tobias, and I'm back again with Yusuf Reune. What's up? Hey, Tobias. Top of mind for me. I realized this actually last week. I realized that we're closing the end of the year and I need a new car for next year. So so the current car that I drive, I've I've got a deal on that one for five years. So that five years is coming up on end of December. So I, I haven't really paid that much focus or effort on, on what to drive next, but ideally it would be a different type of car on what I have now. So I've never had an Audi and I went to their store here in Helsinki last week. I was I was getting my current car fixed and the Audi store was next door so I walked in there while I was waiting. And after 2 seconds of walking into the store there's a sales guy next to me asking so what sort of a car are you looking for? And and I said well actually I I'd be interested in in seeing the Audi Q8. So I think that's the that's the largest SUV that they have. And the reason why I'm looking for that is that when you want to fit three kids on the back seats and plenty of stuff for the summer cabin weekends and whatnot, you need space. So I said, do you have the Audi Q8? I'd, I'd like to have a look at that. The guy goes, well, no, we don't have any on display. They are all sold out. And I'm like, okay, so that's perhaps a positive problem that, that you're selling them so fast that you don't even have one on, on display. But I did ask, what's the delivery time? And he goes, well, if you order today, so this, this was in mid-September, if you order it today, you get it by Christmas 2022. So it's about 14 to 16 months of wait time. But they couldn't commit to this one, so it could be April 2023. So about 20 months of wait wow. time. And I said, yeah, so perhaps let's skip on this. And now the plan doesn't really exist anymore. So I might need to look for a different brand. Or then our family will start using the bus much, much more. Well, that's a long time to wait for a car. I recall the, the current car I have, and I, I usually get a car and then I have it for ages. So I've, I've had this one for a while now. I think they got it ready in about two months or so. But that was, of course, before the shortage of everything, you know, all the components from all the factories around the world now due to the pandemic has suffered in the supply chain a bit. So perhaps this is underlying cause here as well. Or just that more families are now staying home and they need to get a car instead of flying to, you know, whatever sunny locations they usually go. So on my end, I am trying to figure out how to get a reliable network connection in my home office. And I've, I've got these very old wires, uh, electrical wires, and I'm running my Ethernet uh, over the, the electrical plug with one of these power line adapters. So I've been experimenting a little bit on and off with different cables and yeah, different devices, plugging in, plugging out. It seems every time I plug them out and plug them back into the same outlet, I get about 100 megabit. And then in the afternoon, the same day, it goes down to maybe one megabit. And I unplug it and plug it back in and I go back to 100. So there's different, uh, definitely something going on there. But uh, like you gave me a tip 
recently that perhaps it's easier to just bury an Ethernet cable from the main building to the home office, which is disconnected from my main building. So I might just do that to get some reliability uh, or even a fiber cable, which I can also do similarly. So that's on my agenda moving forward to figure that out uh, so we can have some quality recordings moving forward. I do think the connection right now is good enough. Maybe in the afternoon, it will drop again. Other than that, I am planning my next excursion into the woods in late October. So now I'm looking at gear. Everything is on sale now because summer is over. So, so all the online shops, are they have these outlets with 70% off. And I'm going crazy. I'm just going in there. I don't need any of this. And then I just realized I probably need some of these things because I, I love going out into the woods and do hiking. And also overnight, one or two nights in the woods, either by myself or, or with a couple of friends. So we're, we're looking to do that now in October. It's going to be really cold probably uh, around this time. It's closing in on zero degrees at night. So it could be only a few uh, Celsius plus, so perhaps five degrees or so. So you really need to, uh, to think about what gear you bring so you don't actually freeze. Other than that, yeah, really looking forward to get out again. Uh, one thing I realized, and I think we talked about this in the one of the recent episodes as well, like we missed this getting out of the home office or getting out of the house and doing things. And I think you just in the last episode, you mentioned you went to to lunch. You had some lunch with with colleagues and friends and you actually met people. And I realized I'm stuck here all day working, which is awesome. And I see my family every day, full days. It's super cool, but you also need something else. Otherwise, you don't really get the the input from other angles. So nature is a good way for me to get that. So definitely looking forward to that. That sounds like a fun way of spending a weekend or a longer weekend. Just make sure to pack a shovel and some Ethernet cable as well when you get to the woods, just in case. You never know. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Uh, one interesting tidbit here before we continue is, is that uh, I ordered the fiber... Uh, connectivity to my future house that I'm currently building. And that's scheduled for about three months from now that they will actually do the, the digging and stuff. And I had somebody call me yesterday that, hey, we are here at, at your piece of land and we're now digging the cable. Where do you want to connect this? And I said, well, the, the deal, the schedule was for January, so you're a bit ahead. Yeah, yeah, we had free time, so we came came to fix this first. And I said, well, the house isn't there yet, so there's, there's, there's no place to connect anything. Could you perhaps come back later? But the interesting tidbit here is that instead of sort of excavating the whole street open like they did back in the days, what they now do, they have this device that allows them to just do a sliver, a sort of a crack on the concrete, which is, which is maybe one inch, about two centimeters wide. And they will drop the cable in and close it immediately. And I, I figured that's that's great. So perhaps something for you to consider when you start digging on your home yard. Just do this small, tiny thing, drop the cable in, have some insulation just in case, and, and you're good. Yeah, yeah, we'll see how that goes. All righty. So today, this is episode 100. So we figured let's do a quick look back first how we arrived here. And then let's do a bit of a trend analysis on the future of Azure, perhaps for the next 100 or 500 episodes that hopefully we'll be able to, to do the show. So we published our first episode on October 22nd, 2019. So almost exactly two years ago. 
and I, I did have to look this up. That was about Key Vault. And I think we were both super enthusiastic about Key Vault. I know you still are. And initially we set the pace at one episode per week. And we've maintained that, that pace. Any thoughts on this? Would you perhaps revisit this idea if you had a chance? Or do you feel that the pace is something that you've gotten used to in the past two years? So some good reflections there. I, I recall vividly the uh, Key Vault episode being episode number one. I'm still super enthusiastic about getting people to understand key vaults and the importance and also the bottlenecks of using that, which let's not dive into that right now, because that will probably be another episode. So as for the pace of the last two years, I think settling on one episode per week, like we did, was actually a good idea. We have managed to keep a buffer most of the time. And truth be told, sometimes we recorded just a day before or even the same day. As the, as the publication or, or when the episode went live. But most of the time, we actually had a pretty good buffer. So we can record a couple of episodes and then don't have to stress about it. And I think this is important when you have family, you have work, you, have, you need to have this balance with everything. And this is an extracurricular activity, right? So this is a spare time activity. And in order for us to do this consecutively, now for 100 episodes, you know, everything has to work. It cannot be a stretch that you have to really, really make it happen or really, really fight to, to record an episode. You have to get it into your daily routines. You have to get it into your life. And I think we found a pretty good rhythm there. So I know we discussed, should we do monthly, biweekly, or stick to weekly? But I, I mean, looking at the numbers and how people listen to the episode, so everyone now tuning in, we have a regular growth of listeners every week. So I, th I think it's a good cadence. And also that we actually decided to set a specific date and time when each episode is always published at the exact same time, every Wednesday, three o'clock uh, European CET. And seems to work, seems to work really well. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to try and do another uh, 100 episodes in the same cadence. Now with the new home office, hopefully even easier to, to make that happen. One of the things you mentioned is is sort of setting the logistics and and the model and the rhythm. Uh, that was, I would say, relatively easy in a sense. But then we ran into a problem. This was perhaps was it two three months ago. We have this shared OneNote where we always design up ahead the episode. We we have the topics there. We we have quick notes. Perhaps some some lookup data that we need during the recording of, of the shows. And that somehow broke. I think you lost access to the OneNote first. Then we started fixing that with the Microsoft accounts, the Azure AD accounts, removing access, sharing publicly and doing all sorts of trickery. It never sort of recovered from that. Then I created this ad hoc OneNote <laughs> that we are still using because it's an ad hoc one for the next two years. And hopefully, eventually, we'll migrate everything back to a working OneNote. And, and it's, it's been fun in the sense that we've been able to build a buffer. But at the same time, sometimes, perhaps busy weeks, unexpected things happening in life. I think we've twice had to record an episode about two hours prior to our self-imposed time and day we want to release that episode. And on one of those instances, I, I honestly felt that <laughs> we are going to fail now. <laughs> it's, it's not going to be 
ready in time, people will start hating us and, and we will have to fold the whole show because we missed the deadline that we set ourselves. I'm not entirely sure if many people in the audience are actually sitting at home at 3 p.m. <laughs> waiting for the episode to land. It might Eating be five, five just waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might be five minutes past. But still, I, I feel it's important to have this this schedule that that we can follow because it's easier for the audience, but it's also easier for us to design upfront because I know, okay, on Wednesday, we have to have this thing ready. So let's book some time on Tuesday or Monday or whatever. And that's been super helpful. But another thing here, before we move on to the trend analysis, is that we had the grand idea. I think this was after episode two. Okay, this is going so well. So what we'll do is I will hop on the plane, fly to Copenhagen. It's about one hour, 40 minutes for me. Then I will drive to your house and then we'll record like like 20 episodes during the weekend. And then we can just sit and relax for, for six months. And, and we sort of had this plan in motion. I was about to book the flight tickets and we were checking the calendars. And then COVID-19 happened <laughs> and, and nobody has been flying in the past two years. So perhaps that will happen one day in the future. But just to be on the safe side, let's not commit to something like this happening and, and perhaps continue because this seems to be working. Yeah, so this works pretty good. Uh, I was looking forward to uh, coming to Finland as well. If nothing else, to uh, crack a, a good bottle of wine and, and have some dinner, but also to record a couple of episodes. But yeah, I think we were perhaps a bit optimistic on let's sit down over our weekend and record at least 10 episodes. So and then, and then we're good for a couple of months. Yeah, it's it's not going to happen. And also the astral landscape changes so rapidly. So if you record something today and you publish that in three months, it might be outdated. So we cannot do the Azure updates episodes uh, some services would remain, of course, like the Azure Key Vault episode, episode number one. Everything we said in that episode is still true today. So, of course, depending on what we talk about. But yeah, we do have a good rhythm. Indeed. Alrighty. So then we sat down before we started recording this episode and, and we did quick notes on a sort of trend analysis. What do we see, anticipate or forecast or, or even hope would happen within Azure at large in the next 10 years or so. So it's it's super difficult to predict what's going to happen eight years from now with a given service. So these are perhaps slightly more wider landscape viewing opinions and thoughts. So so what's sort of top of mind for you considering Azure in the next 10 years? Well, talking about trends and predictions, I, I think this is the obvious one for, for everyone listening to, to this show and everyone working with cloud computing at all, uh, specifically with Microsoft Azure, it's that Microsoft Azure's revenue year over year, it keeps growing. Every year it keeps growing a lot. I took a, a recent view on the uh, different quarters, every single quarter, it just goes up, right? There's a straight line going up. So I took a look at the Synergy Research Group's chart uh, of the share of worldwide revenues over the cloud uh, provider market and you know AWS uh, they're leading here with more than 30% of the market shares uh, but the interesting thing is that the trend is Microsoft keeps going up and continues to go up for every single quarter some of the competitors they go a little bit up then one down and a little bit up and some down you know some stay afloat some just keeps going up and looking at 
Microsoft and Azure specifically, it looks like it's prominently sticking out in that chart, just going up. So Azure has been around for a while. And I, I think now it's really the time where we'll see this kind of unprecedented rate of growth moving, moving forward for Azure. So the coming five, even 10 years, I would bet all my money on, on Microsoft, you know, when it comes to cloud computing, they are doing so many game-changing things. I really like how it's empowering and enabling the entire world to, you know, build whatever kind of solutions you want and support your infrastructure, get your companies online, get them into the cloud and making this easy for everyone. So yeah, I, I think from a trend perspective, perspective, that's my number one, which is perhaps the easiest thing to predict because looking at the charts historically, everything keeps going up for Microsoft Azure. I don't think that trend is going to break. So that's going to continue for the next decade as well. I really like this and, and perhaps we can be slightly more positive in the sense that the revenues for Microsoft will go up, which in retrospect will, will mean that Azure will continue growing in the future as well. So it, it makes more sense to invest in Azure growth at the same time. Two thoughts here, one being that perhaps on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, basis, I sit down with a group of people, perhaps I'm delivering a training, or it's a workshop, and there's somebody attending that meeting or training with zero experience in Azure. And I often spend perhaps a few minutes, let's quickly go through what's happened in the past 10 years with Azure. And that reminds me that perhaps in 2015, if you had a similar discussion with somebody coming to the collaboration side, thinking what's SharePoint, what's Office 365, you would spend five minutes going through the past 15 years. Yeah, we got SharePoint portal server 2001 and so on. And you can discard this, 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 and this, and this is the new thing, this is preview, this doesn't work, and so on. And now with Azure, I feel we are sort of in the same ground, but at the same time, we can also sort of say that Alrighty, so you can forget the first five years because none of that is relevant anymore, but focus on this, this, and this, and this. And it might be a little bit easier for somebody coming to the Azure landscape, either as an IT pro or dev, or just as a business person trying to understand what are we investing in. So that's perhaps the first thought. But the second one on Azure revenues, since Azure is the underlying power for Power Platform, Dynamics 365, Microsoft 365, Xbox, and a lot of other services. I, I feel that as long as Azure keeps evolving, it also means it will provide more capacity, more capabilities for all of the other cloud services that Microsoft is so heavily investing in. But what do you think? Are we seeing the economies of scale here in the future? Meaning that the, the more focused these public cloud services are going to be, mainly AWS, Google Cloud, and Azure, that the cost, meaning the prices for customers, will eventually go down as well. And initially I felt, yeah, definitely this is what's going to happen in the next 10 years. But now seeing that Microsoft 365 licenses are seeing their first price increase in early 2022, for valid reasons. I'm not fully certain anymore that 10 years from now, when we are doing the, the 950th episode of this show, that we would agree that yes, 
the cost went down and we got much more. It could be that the cost remains, but we're still getting more than what we're getting today. Any any thoughts on this? Uh, I haven't given that a lot of thought, but I, I think uh, talking about economies at scale, you know, this goes with everything. If you look historically as well, uh, something that becomes widely adopted and you know is running at large scale, eventually the prices might go down or they might stick as the rest of the economy grows as well. So I think if we talk about revenue, that will keep increasing because you also take bigger market shares. There are more companies getting into the cloud. So like technically, even if you would decrease the price of the services, if you increase your customer base by 30%, but you decrease the, the price per customer by X percent, you're still making a positive revenue, which is higher than you did before. So this, again, comes into the scale picture. It's I don't think it's as easy as cost will go down or the price will go down and therefore the revenue will go down. I think quite the contrary, that the amount of companies and individuals using the cloud for different things will just continue to grow. And everyone who's already in the cloud will find more use cases for things running in the cloud and they will have more consumption. There will be more things that relies solely on the cloud, more services. Everything will be running in the cloud, if you will. So I think thinking big scale, thinking 10 years ahead, I think the consumption we have today will quadruple, maybe even more than that, like exponentially grow the consumption. And that in then relation to cost decrease or price decrease is totally fine because the bottom line of the revenue of the company doing the cloud provider, in this case, Microsoft, it's just going to keep going up. So as long as there's a use for the cloud and cloud adoption keeps growing, I think this is going to be just one trend, and that trend is straight up. Another perhaps aspect here, and I, I think we've we've discussed this briefly a couple of times. So Azure is is expanding, and we are getting new data centers, new locations in Azure every year now. So Denmark and Sweden have been announced, and those are of special interest to me and you because we live so close to those. But we don't have one in Finland, there's no public plans for that. But at the same time, I'm thinking 10 years from now, if all countries would have an Azure location, would that be the optimal situation? Do we really need this? And the more I think about this, I already feel that the situation is, is fairly great already in Europe. We have plenty to choose from. The connectivity is, is very good. And it, it hasn't been a thing that I've, I've constantly missed that I hope the Swedish one would be online or the one in Denmark. I'm perfectly happy with already what we have today. But would you say something changes for you? Let's say five years from now, perhaps Sweden has five different locations. Would you utilize those more heavily or would you stick with the ones you already have today? So and I think the, the question is tricky because the, the answer is it depends, as always, <laughs> depending on if, if that is for my personal use or if that is for an organizational use. And if that is a global organization, like both of us worked with intranets in the past, we had companies that we worked with, enterprises and small companies. Some of the enterprises, they are global. They have offices across the globe. And you cannot just put everything in the Swedish data center or the European one because things need to be kind of spread out. Uh, so I see the same kind of discussion here. For me, I don't have a reason to choose the Swedish data center right now because everything we operate operates out of Europe right now. 
with opt-in to host and run your things on the U.S. continent. So we also have data centers in the U.S. You can choose where to run the service, if you will. But within Europe, everyone, most everyone, at least uh, using our services, they have a good internet connection. And I never have issues. We use West Europe, North Europe, whatever. None of which is located in Scandinavia, where I am. But the uh, connectivity is super. It's super quick. I never had any issues whatsoever due to latency or anything like that. So I don't see a strong reason for me or us operating the services we have, but I do see the legal reasons. And I think we touched on this in a couple of episodes as well, regulatory compliance and, and data privacy, uh, data sovereignty, where's your data located, where's it stored, how's it encrypted. And these things differ uh, by regulations and laws in different countries. So I think here it will become increasingly uh, interesting for organizations, especially some of the customers I used to work with. They were very security aware, very security focused, and they did not go to the cloud because the cloud was not in Sweden, right? So these organizations exist, these requirement exists, and I do think we'll see an uptick in companies, uh, companies now re-evaluating whether they want to land in the cloud or not because of regulatory requirements or legal aspects, uh, which now is easier. If, it, if everything, including the network traffic, data storage, encryption algorithms, your key vaults, whatever, is all located within the boundaries of your own country, that's great. That makes a lot of things, and especially the paperwork, a lot easier in, in some cases. So I do see the benefit, uh, whereas talking just network connectivity, for us, as long as we're operating within the, the EU, we're good. And everything here is fast. So personally, I don't have the requirement to do that. But for all the companies I've worked with, I do see that some of them already requested this 10 years ago and keep requesting that. So it's definitely going to be a, a game changer for some companies where they now can say, well, we did plan to go to the cloud, but we could not for legal reasons. Now, all of a sudden we can, and we just have to get the projects kicked off. So I think we'll see more of those kind of cloud migration projects from um, you know, companies operating out of countries where Azure did not have a region previously. Let me continue on, on this same theme now. And this is something I'm, I'm slightly more worried every year. And that's the next generation of IT pros and devs. I, I feel that there's zero need for somebody starting as an IT pro in 2021 to experience anything in on-premises in any capacity anymore. So there's no need to put together servers in a rack cabinet, actually building the hardware. There's no need to ever install an operating system on a server. There's no need to ever upgrade that operating system. So in essence, most IT pros nowadays, they work with hardware that's so obfuscated or abstracted from the interfaces and, and, and the actual physical hardware that it simply isn't worth anyone's time to dig deeper into the classic IT problems anymore. It sort of is reduced to a subset of people who operate the data centers, but everybody else can just say, well, it's not my problem anymore. And what I find worrying here is that if I'm working with a company and perhaps we're doing a migration to the cloud or a hybrid setup or some such, is that there's less and less people who have a voice on the table saying, well, in on-prem we did this, or perhaps we need to consider that. 
because now all the problems are approached through the cloud as opposed to understanding what did we build 10 or 15 years ago? What was the reason then? And are we doing something better now in the cloud? So sort of forgetting the history, if you will. And I, I haven't found a solution for this because I don't feel it's worthwhile for somebody to start learning all the legacy stuff unless they really know that they can work on that for the next 20 years. And I know, Toby, that, that for you it wouldn't make any sense to start learning all the IT pro stuff that you're never ever going to manage or maintain or build yourself. And I feel anybody who's younger than us feels much the same because the, the modern stuff happens in the cloud now. Uh, I think this is a, a very interesting observation and I think this possibly mandates a full ep episode on its own. It's like my parents, they told me when I grew up and I wanted to buy my first car that I should not get an automatic car because I needed to understand how to gear, how the gears works internally and you know all the things of the car. Whereas now, when I can actually make my own decision around that, I always get an automatic because I don't care about it. I don't need it. It's, it's like moving to the cloud in that sense. I don't care about the server. I don't care about, I, I don't need to maintain it. I don't care about it. I want to push a button on my browser or my phone or whatever, and it boots up and then I have everything ready. I don't care about the hardware. And this was the promise of the cloud a decade ago. And this is the promise we're now seeing coming true. It's been true for a while. So I don't see the reason. And, and the things I operate, I don't have anything installed on bare metal. I don't have anything installed on an actual physical server myself that I maintain. What I have is my laptop. On my laptop, I have some VMs or VMs accessible, which are running in the cloud. I have some different command lines and shells also running in the cloud. I have a remote desktop or a, a Windows 365 desktop, which is also running in the cloud. If, if I throw my laptop in the pond or down in the sea, doesn't matter, I'll get a new one, I'll just sign in and I can just go. I don't have to have everything installed barebone uh, directly on the metal or anything like that. So definitely the next generation of IT pros and, and also devs, um, they don't need to know that. And I don't, I don't think they should. Because if you develop cloud-native solution, and I guess that's kind of what we're talking about here, we're talking about Azure or the cloud. If you do develop cloud-native solutions, things running natively in the cloud by design, you don't need to know any of that stuff. And I recently had a discussion with uh, one of the greatest developers I've ever seen, uh, which is a friend of mine, 15 years younger, so pretty young. And, and he's so promising, like he picks everything up because he doesn't care about anything else. He, he just looks at a language and he understands it. It's really impressive, but he doesn't care about anything else. I don't care where it runs. I don't care if it's going to be in Docker or in a web app or in Azure service or in AWS. I don't care. I focus on the code and the code is doing this. That's it. Wherever you want to host it, run it. I don't care. Right? So there's a very interesting observation there as well that, that some of these, and this is a brilliant developer, can pick up anything. Probably, and, and which is what he mentioned himself, it's because he, he actively decides not to care about where it's running, how it's running, all these things. There's someone who's better capable of doing that and, and probably cares about it. I just want to code. I just want to make it work. And he does make it work really well. So I, I think that's kind of what we have in the big data centers. We have people doing the hardware, people changing the disks and, and changing the racks and all this stuff. We don't need to care about that. Then, of course, you need to understand the, the cloud architecture. You know, how do you want to operate and run it? 
maybe this developer doesn't have to do that, but whoever will operate it on your end will have to do that. Even if it's in the cloud, you need to make the right decisions. So you run it on the on the correct platform, service, you know, scaling the workload, stuff like that. But that was a really interesting dialogue. And I asked, how do you do design patterns and stuff? Well, I just go read. So right now he's developing a lot on Azure. You go see Azure, what you call the uh, architecture center, it takes a look and it says, in order to build a resilient web app, these are the things you need to do. And then he does that, done. So doesn't care about anything else. Here's the guidance. This is my objective. I'm going to write the code. And then it's done. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Do you still remember about 21 years ago before the Y2K was about to hit us? At least here in Finland, a lot of the news were about banks and financial institutions and insurance companies trying to find people who are already retired to come and fix and migrate those old COBOL and Fortran-based solutions to somehow work in the future. And this was before the public clouds existed. And I remember sort of thinking, yeah, who cares about that legacy stuff? But now, fast forward 21 years, and I'm in the same situation. I work with companies who say, yeah, we've got this old on-premises Active Directory and DNS and DHCP and all this stuff. We need to get rid of this, but without breaking this and this and this. And I'm actually looking at those old legacy things from 20 or 25 years ago. And I can imagine somebody half my age is, is, is watching on the sidelines and figuring who cares about this old stuff. Well, you see yep. cares. And it's interesting. So 10 years from now, perhaps we are looking at certain services that we've been talking about in this show. And we go, well, that's legacy. Let's not talk about that anymore. But anything else beyond sort of the legacy aspects on your trend analysis think list that you would highlight here? Yeah, I think one word, AI. So I, I think in the coming years, AI will grow a lot and become more of a commodity than it is today. And things like NLP or natural language processing uh, that enables computers to write text and software is probably also something to look for. And, and this is uh, you know one of the trends I have seen getting an uptake and something more called ethical AI. Making sure that the AIs know how to interact more like humans, like we're doing now, and that they have an ethical compass while doing so. You know, if if you're gonna get, and this is perhaps a bit meta discussion in in the sense, if you create an AI that is human-like, how do you get it to pick up the good side of humanity, not the destructive side? Because let's be honest, we have a very destructive side as well. We are destroying the environment. We're destroying each other. We're we're creating wars and all this crazy stuff going on in the world. So when you create an AI, how do you make it, if you now make it more like a, a human type of interaction, and, and if you make an AI that writes software, you know, I, I don't think, at least in the coming 10 years, we'll see kind of Terminator AI, <laughs> which is good, I think. But uh, if you've seen the movie, I think it's called Hawkeye, which is, or GoldenEye, maybe, uh, something like that. Look it up. Uh, it's about a, a global uh, security and surveillance system that can see into every single device, every uh, mobile phone, every security camera, you know, get access to everything. And then it gets kind of its own life. It gets control and becomes really yeah, a, a, a self-living organism, if, if you will, a, a sentient 
AI, and then it decides based on history that humanity is not good. <laughs> so we need to uh, we need to destroy uh, some of humanity and some of the humans, and and that's kind of the, the storyline there. So I don't think that's the direction we're going in, but I think this ethical AI is gonna be getting an uptrend. So when we now see more AI also in Azure, and and this is like AI is being encompassed into everything that we see. And when AI gets so advanced that it's integrating more with human behavior, writing software, helping you write software, how do you make sure it's doing that with an ethical compass? That's something I will. I think we'll see a lot more of the, the ethical side of AI. Discussions about writing ethical AI. How do you put mandates down for ethical AI? What is ethical? Because that might differ depending on who you ask as well. So I think that is something we'll see in the coming years. More ethical AI. Very abstract discussion, but I, I think it's also this entire topic is pretty abstract. But I, I think it's also important. So the more people do research on AI, the more we have to keep this in mind, make sure we do things right. We don't just do things, but, you know, the moral compass and ethical compass, super important. I think it was in, uh, perhaps in 2018 or 2019, in, uh, in an Ignite or Build conference, that they highlighted on the keynotes, the thoughts are around ethical AI, and they published the manifesto and everything else. And many in the audience, including myself, were a bit like, well, ethical AI, that seems a bit abstract and so far away still. And I, I feel there's a huge gap even today that there are professionals looking at AI in the sense that, okay, can I get this ready-made algorithm for me to do whatever? Yes, I can plug this in from cognitive services and it works this is good enough for me. AI is a service that I'm simply using and utilizing. And then there's the other end, people really thinking about this. How do we solve these problems, not just with AI, but with the ethical side as well? And and the gap between these two camps, I, I, I feel it's huge because I'm not sure I belong in either camp myself, but I'm sort of in between trying to understand both sides. So it's an interesting aspect, definitely. And perhaps we need to dive deeper into AI in one of the uh, coming episodes. Last one on my list is um, everything I feel in the next 10 years, every Azure service will have a security-related capability bolted onto it. So today we have roughly, what, 200, 250 Azure services, depending a bit on how you count. Is app service one service, or is it web app is one, functions is another, web app for containers is a third one, and so on. Anyhow, about 200, 250 services. So I feel that 10 years from now, we have about 2,000 services, but 4,000 security services to maintain and manage and secure everything else. I think that's pretty relevant. So speaking of, of security and, and security-related capabilities, I, I think this makes sense. And just looking historically now, the last two or three years, you see every single thing, um, every service in Azure is getting more security capabilities. So all the existing services, or most of them, are getting really good capabilities and integrations with Azure Security Center, sending signals to diagnostic logs and picking these up from Azure Sentinel and stuff like this. So in a sense... Even if the, the service you're using does not have a native like security uh, aspect, you can still 
um, you know, plug the signals into diagnostics and run them through Azure Sentinel to pick up on security signals. So there's always a way. And I, I think just like you said, that more native, more natively, we'll we'll see a lot of these things integrated into existing services and new services. So I think you just to round on that note, I think also increased awareness of all security, privacy, and compliance efforts for organizations will increase. So meaning more budgets also and more efforts going into securing the assets that organizations have. And that hopefully opens up to uh, being more proactive so we can set up our security posture proactively in our organizations rather than reactive after something happened. And this is where I think also DevSecOps, uh, we talked about this in one episode, becomes the norm and more organizations are shifting left, as you say, with a proper secure SDLC or software development lifecycle. So I think the, the security topic in itself, I mean, that mandates, we'll, we'll have to do that in, a, in an episode, perhaps only security uh, trends in Azure, which I think is, there's enough coverage to do a very lengthy episode on that. So I think these are the things that will happen in near time, but also like in the next five and uh, 10 years, these things will become the norm. There, there's not going to be a dev team that says, no, we don't do security in our development. No, we don't do security. We don't focus on that. You know, it's, there's a security team somewhere in the organization taking a look at security. I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of organizations will kind of adopt and adapt and, and get, you know, this mindset of shifting left and in this case, shifting all the security efforts left. If you think of a timeline that is horizontal, the beginning being zero being to the left, you kind of want to move security as far to that point as you can. And so that's why we say shifting left. So the earlier you can do security, which is usually when you write the code or even the test for the code, you know, the better, because it's better to find it in the code and then in your QA systems than it is to find it in production and then mitigate it. Or if someone else finds it in your production and then you have to mitigate it, which is kind of not so so nice. So I think definitely you're, you're on track there with security-related capabilities will explode, but also the awareness of organizations and the fact that they need to budget in for more security efforts, I think that is also going to be more clear to a lot of people. Indeed. Super interesting trends and, and thoughts here. We need to do this again maybe two years from now and see how we did and what sort of analysis we have for the future. We'll, we'll only do it if we if we pick the right prediction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah as we <laughs> said two years ago. <laughs> Uh, alrighty, so so to recap this and close this episode, we usually do the unexpected question, and we plan on doing that in the future as well. But this time, because it's the 100th episode, we figured let's do a cloud joke. Toby, you go first. Oh, okay, cloud joke. Okay, here's one. What does a cloud wear under his raincoat? Of course, a cloud joke needs needs a cloud. I have no idea. Underwear. <laughs> Excellent. I I will need to remember this because next time I'm having dinner with the kids, they always love the dad jokes that I that I bring in. Well, not love, but they actually actually say that please dad don't do those anymore. So this is one more to add. For me, this isn't strictly a joke, but it's a, it's a fun story though that relates to a cloud and I saw this story about a week ago, but it's already published late last year. So I hope many in the audience haven't heard about this. So this is from Germany, from a small place called Schmallenberg-Oberkirchen. 
And there's a photographer who needed to transfer 4.5 gigabytes of photos to a print shop. And since apparently internet in Germany, some areas in Germany is super slow, he wanted to do a test. He used a third party cloud-based uh, file transfer server called WeTransfer to upload his 4.5 gigs of data to the print shop. And then he also burned those photos on a CD or DVD, I think it is, and put those on a, on a horse and had the horse run 10 kilometers to the city, <laughs> to the print shop. <laughs> and the horse was faster <laughs> than the cloud. And, and he figured, okay, still a good time to own a horse because it, it might be faster. The we transfer through the cloud, that took four hours. And the horse only took one hour and a half. There you go. So yeah. maybe I'll need to do the similar experiment here. So I need to buy a horse and then yeah. the, the test to test the latency and throughput. <laughs> exactly. I, what I might do, I might use a USB stick because I don't have physical media anymore like CDs or DVDs, but I might use a USB stick, put it in the backpack of my three-year-old, have him use his bicycle to do two kilometers and see which one is faster. I think he would still be faster. That too. Alrighty, this was fun. 100 episodes. Uh, we'll be back next week with the 101st episode. Thank you for listening to this episode and hopefully many of the previous episodes. And until next week. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm.